0: Turn, if you would, to the 11th chapter of the book of Romans. We are going to finish the 11th chapter today, one way or another. (laughs) We'll read the last verse and be done. I will be gone next week. I'll be helping my daughter move. Last year, we moved all of her stuff up to the third floor apartment and this year we get to move it all down from the third floor apartment. <laughs> so I will be in Temple next weekend helping her do that. The next week after that, we'll start in Chapter 12. And remember the structure of the book. Chapters 1 to, through 8, we talked about justification by faith alone. He set the groundwork. He described what it meant. He used Abraham as an example. He talked about some of the objections to it. That was Chapters 1 through 8. Ended with the magnificent chapter 8. Chapter 12 begins the practical application. What should I do because I've been justified by grace, by faith alone? But in between 8 and 12 are 9, 10, and 11. And we've been working our way through these because Paul looks back and says, Okay, but what about the Jews? Did God mess up? by making promises to the Jews that he could not fulfill. And we had a discussion in chapter 9 about election. We will talk about that some more today as quick as we can. We'll race through it. And the end result is Paul is saying God has always had a plan. God has always saved a remnant. That's where we ended up last week. At the start of chapter 11, he used the example of Elijah complaining, I'm the only one left in the world who is worshiping you, God. And God says, no, I've got a remnant who has not bowed the knee to Baal, who have not succumbed to the public religion of the time. God always saves his remnant. And we're going to end up today talking about that God still has something in mind for the nation of Israel. But before we start that, I want to give a smidgen of a theology lesson, just a smidgen. Our church is part of the Bible Church movement, which came out of, if you will, Dallas Theological Seminary. And one of our distinctives is a belief in what is known as dispensationalism. Dispensationalism simply means this. God works with different people at different times in different ways. Hmm. Does that mean there's different ways to get to heaven? No. But if you look at history, from Adam and Eve until today, God told Adam and Eve, don't eat of that fruit. He gave them a test Don't eat of the fruit of that tree. Everything else you can have, don't eat of that. And they failed the test. There was a dispensation, a period where God dealt with them in a particular fashion. Then he gave Abraham, and then he gave the Mosaic law. Do this, and you will be right with God. Now, we know that every dispensation required faith in God. And in every dispensation, people tried to do it their own way. Why is this important? Because we believe that God made promises to the nation of Israel that God is still going to keep. We are in an age of, if you will, the Gentiles, an age of grace. That's the dispensation that we live in today. It is interesting, if you want to start reading about dispensationalism, you can get the old-timey charts that have these complicated, detailed charts of all the dispensations. I asked one of the staff members of our church one time, and he'll remain anonymous because I don't want to get him in trouble. I said, how many dispensations are there? And he said, well, there's at least four. There's probably no more than eight. (laughs) Because you go to different writers and, oh, there's got to be seven. Oh, no, nope, there's only six. Ah, oh, there's 2,500. No. Okay. God works with different people in history at different times in different ways. We are in the dispensation of grace. But, and here's the but, God did not forsake the nation of Israel. That is what I get out of chapter 11 of the book of Romans. We're going to get down there to the end of it, and he's going to say God is still working with the nation of Israel. But, comma, they have had a hardening of heart, and they are rejecting the gospel for a season. I'm going to tell you the whole lesson right here in five minutes, and then you can go home, okay? God has given the Gentile community an opportunity to receive the gospel. He has set aside, he has broken off a branch, is the analogy we're going to use, of the Israelites, the Jews, so that he can graft on, this is the picture he's going to use, The Gentile community for a time. And if it's a good thing that the Gentile community is being invited to share in the gospel, how much better is it going to be when the Jewish community and the Gentile community are united together in faith? That's where he's headed with this book. You ready? We finished last week somewhere around verse 6. So we'll pick up again in verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What were they seeking? Well, apparently they were seeking after the things of God, but they were doing it their own way. Remember the beginning of chapter 10. They had the zeal for God, but they did not have the knowledge. What do you mean they didn't have the knowledge? They knew more about God than any other group on the planet. They didn't know That Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't know that they needed to accept Jesus, and they rejected Jesus. Now, at this point, if Esther was here, and for those of you who have been here not for very long, Esther was our nice Jewish lady that was in my class, and if I ever said anything bad about the Jews, she would pop up her hand, and she would say, well, that was some of the Jews. Well, that's true, because we know that some of the Jews accepted. We know that Paul did. That's the remnant that accepted. The majority of the Jewish community would not acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and they rejected them. Why? What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Huh. Anybody have any trouble with that verse? Can we just kind of race through it? What is it saying? God hardened their hearts. We have had discussion after discussion. After discussion about what it means to harden your heart. The question that everyone always asks, does God harden hearts or do we harden our own heart? And the answer is unequivocally yes. You go back to the first chapter of the book of Romans. Romans that downward spiral where we as humanity chose to worship the created things rather than the creator, and it says God gave them over, which means God let them do what they wanted to do, and it was a downward spiral. Three times in that chapter it says God gave them over. They did this, they wanted to sin more, and God said do it. And we had a discussion on at least three occasions in this book about the fact that God in his common grace is a restraint on sin in the world, even among unbelievers. You may have trouble understanding that at times when you read the newspaper and you read about all the bad things happening, but remember, people could be worse. And it is God's restraint that keeps people from being as bad as they could. Well, what if he removed that restraint what if God said, you want to be blind to the things of God? Go chase after the things of this world, and you will be blind. You will not see. So the question becomes theologically, does God do it or do we do it? And the answer is yes. The nation of Israel had their hearts hardened Because they refused to acknowledge the truths about God and the truths about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, remember what I said just a while ago, though. He has not given up on the nation of Israel. He has not given up on them. Let's keep reading. And David said, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. He's letting them do what they want to do, which is to turn their backs on God. Huh. Why would he do that? It's interesting, if you remember... Last year's series that we did on the history of Israel, starting at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and a little bit into Joshua. And you get to the end of, what is it, Deuteronomy, and Moses gives his final, I would call it a pep talk to the people, but it wasn't really a pep talk, okay? He says, you know, you may think God chose you because you were the biggest nation in the world. You weren't the biggest nation in the world. You may think God chose you because you were the toughest nation in the world. You weren't the toughest nation in the world. You may think God chose you because you were the most righteous nation in the world. But you want to know something? You are stubborn as a brick. I think it was a donkey, but (laughs) something. They were stubborn then. They were stubborn when Jesus was there, and they are stubborn today. But lest we forget, we were stubborn then, we were stubborn then, and we are stubborn today. There's going to be a warning in the middle of this. He's just going to turn to the Gentiles and say, don't think. Don't get arrogant and think. That now that he's rejected the Jews, that you can get away with the things that the Jews used to do. You can't do it. God is going to punish arrogance then, and he's going to punish it today. He is not going to reward those who do their own thing then, and he is not going to reward those who do their own thing today. God chose the nation of Israel because God had made promises to Abraham, and God was going to keep his promises Why is that important? Because you and I aren't very good either. You and I are rather stubborn ourselves. We could have analogies of bricks and donkeys and all that kind of thing and talk about us. But God has made promises that those who call on the name of the Lord, this was last week's lesson, that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And God's going to keep that promise. Let's keep going. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? What does that mean? Did they just stumble just so they could be kicked out of the picture? Did God let them fall away so that he could remove them and bring in somebody in their place? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So it is to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentile, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What is the full inclusion? The full inclusion is the point in time where the Jewish people... As a people, acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah and say yes. And that will be a good thing. So, why did God allow the Jewish people to fall away for a season? So that the gospel could and would be shared with the Gentile world. Now, that kind of poses some interesting questions. Why was that necessary? Why was it necessary that the Jews reject so the Gentiles could accept? I don't think I know the answer to that question. I do know, I do know that the Jewish persecution of the early church is what drove the early church to spread the gospel to all the known world. The early church were quite content to be good Jews sitting in Jerusalem. Even though God had told them, go to the ends of the world, they were quite content. And so God said, here, let me prod you a little bit to go do what I told you to do. So we know that's true. We know that the rejection of the Jewish, by the Jewish people caused, provoked the church to spread to all the known world. But here's the flip side of it, which is what is being alluded to here. By spreading the gospel to the Gentile world, God is using the Gentile world to provoke the Jewish community to be jealous and to return to Christ. That's interesting. Is that happening today? maybe, maybe we had a discussion last week that there are large numbers of Jews who are coming to Christ. But as a society, as a Jewish religion, not yet. But that is in the future. That is the expectation. We're going to see it in just a moment. When the number of Gentiles is complete, whatever that means, And no, I'm not going to give you a number. When the number of Gentiles is complete, God's going to say, okay. We would contend that would be the rapture. But we're not going to talk about that today. Now I'm speaking. So I ask you, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, the rest of us, most of us, I assume, are from a Gentile background, non Jewish. If we got a blessing out of this, if it was a great thing, if it brought riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? How great will the celebration be when the Jewish community is fulfilled and recognize Jesus as the Messiah. It's going to be a great and wonderful time. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Remember at the very beginning, when we started the book of Romans, we talked about the fact that the church in Rome was probably a combination of Jews who had converted and Gentiles who had converted. So it was kind of a mixed group. So sometime in this uh, book, and particularly in these chapters, you kind of see Paul leaning toward the Jewish half and go, let me talk to you for a moment. Well, here he's leaning back to the Gentile half and saying, let me talk to you for a moment. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. i magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. I just like that phrase, okay? It wasn't those wretched Jews over there. It was my brothers, the Jewish community. Starting in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 and in chapter 11, Paul repeats repeatedly that he would do whatever it took to save his brothers, the Jewish community. He hasn't rejected them. God hasn't rejected them. Nor should we. In order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Huh. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. He's talking about the remnant of Jews being saved. And if we start it in the right place, if the root is right, then from that can grow a good tree, plant, bush, whatever. So, what is the root? Huh. We would love to get back in this passage to. Jesus' comment about I am the vine and you are the branches, and continue that analogy, but I'm not sure we should go that far. I think the root that he's dealing with here is the beginning of the Jewish faith, the promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, J- uh, Jacob, and their descendants. The promises are still there. The promises are good. And if the root is good, we can build something good on it. So he is going to talk about, he is going to use the imagery of branches and a root and a plant and grafting things on. Let's read it and then we'll discuss it. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, was grafted were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Hmm. Huh. So, I've got an olive tree. I don't work on trees, okay? I, I think I ought to just throw that in right now. You know, I, I've done some strange things with trees, trying to keep them from falling over, but as a general rule, I don't. But I do know That you can take a tree and you can cut off a branch. You can clean up the place and then you can bring a branch from another tree, clean up all the spots, stick them together, and if life is good, they will grow together. Huh. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? You remove dead branches and you put live branches on. You bring old fruit, new fruit, merge it all together, and people do this all the time. You do that to raise, pecan crop. <laughs> you do that to raise a pecan crop? Why do you do it to raise a pecan crop? That's the only way you can get an improved variety into a native fruit. You get an improved variety into a native fruit. So you have a bunch of olive trees. That's what we're talking about right here, which take time to grow. You want to improve them, so you whack off a few branches and you put new branches on. That's the analogy. I've broken off, God speaking, I've broken off some of the dead Jewish branches and I've grafted on the Gentile community. And that's good. It produces new life and it's certainly good for The branches that are grafted in. That's the analogy that he's using. Why is he saying this? Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, he's talking to the Gentiles. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root. It is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You ready for this? Christianity, we, we, you know, read our New Testament. Christianity is based on the roots of Judaism. <gasps> it is not a rejection. It is built on the roots of Judaism. Do not be arrogant. Do not be, and I will use the word that is used today anti-Semitic, and think God hates them now because we replaced them. Do not, do not, do not follow that path of thought. Don't think that God has rejected them, therefore we can be arrogant toward them. Paul is sitting here talking to the church at Rome made up of Jews and Gentiles. And you know that every division within the church, outside the church, wherever it is, has caused strife. And he turns to the Gentile members of the congregation and tells them, don't be arrogant. Why would they be arrogant? Because we followed Christ and the Jews rejected him. Because we're on the inside and they're on the outside. Because what we have is vastly superior to what they have. And they, they are history. Don't be arrogant. Now, I might add at this point that the whole book of Romans deals with our arrogance thinking that we have somehow due to our superior nature wisdom love of truth somehow some way that we have saved ourselves or at least contributed a significant portion of our salvation the whole book of romans is about no it is all god's doing beginning to end if you want to know why we talk about the doctrine of election in the first place it is to take that arrogance and rub it into the ground and say, no, it's not you. It is all God. Don't anyone ever leave this building thinking, God's really good. I mean, it's really good that God has me on his side. He really needs me. To use the King James Version, God can use an ass if he wants to share his word. He might even work with you. Why do we say this? Because we know, Paul knows, we all have a tendency to be arrogant and think, God's really blessed to have me on his side. No. Gentile community, don't be arrogant. Jewish community, don't be arrogant. He dealt with that earlier. I mean, the Jewish community, they had the law, they had the prophets, they had the patriarchs, they had all this great stuff. And they were relying on it to be saved and not on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. If you are If you're arrogant toward the branches, that is, arrogant toward the Jewish community, if you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Hmm. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And we get to one of my favorite verses that people don't like. Note, then, the kindness and severity of God. The kindness and severity of God. Now. We as a church, I in particular, believe that you cannot lose your salvation. We've had this discussion in here before that if you are saved by the work of Christ alone, Christ isn't changing his mind. Having said that, there are lots of people who attend this church, who belong to this nation, and because they have some semblance of, well, we were a Christian nation at some time. If I belong to this nation, I must be going to heaven. There are people who attend this community who think, because I show up in this building one day a week, I'm in. And that's wrong. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're not in. You're just a pretend branch. Why is that important? God broke off the Jewish branches that were not being faithful to him. And he has allowed the Gentile community to be grafted in. But you know what? There are those within the Gentile community huh, who aren't saved. That shouldn't surprise us but there are those in the Gentile community who believe they're saved because they do certain rituals and follow certain moral codes. Wait, isn't that what got the Jewish community in trouble in the first place? Yes. Don't think that because they were rejected and the Gentile community was grafted in that you have... Isn't this exactly what the Jews were doing? thinking that I was part of the covenant family, therefore that no matter what I do, I'm still in? Isn't that what we do? Oh, since I go to a Bible church, I'm vastly superior to those people. I must be in. Or if I live in this country, I'm an American. We're a Christian nation, blah, 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 blah. It's the old adage, just because you sleep in a garage doesn't make you a car. What is the warning? Do not be arrogant, but fear. Fear. That's a word we don't like. Why should we fear? Doesn't love conquer all fear? Doesn't God come to remove fear from our lives? Yes and no. Yes, to remove the fear of what other people think about us, to remove the fear of death, to remove the fear of what the world is going to do to us, that fear needs to go away as we accept that God is in control. But are we ever to become arrogant and not have awe in the presence of a holy God? No. We are never to reach that point. God is God. He is the sovereign of the universe and we are are to have awe before him. We are to fear. Why? Because if we, as the Gentile community, refuse to do what God wants us to do, he will break it away and burn it on the pile. Do not be arrogant. Do we do that? (laughs) Yes, we do. Speaking to the Gentile, half of the church, Paul says, don't be arrogant. Just because they've been rejected doesn't mean that you have a free ride. Rather, remember the kindness and severity of God. Hmm. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The theological discussion that we had several, several, several weeks ago when we quickly went through the five points of Calvinism was known as perseverance of the saints. And it simply means this. Those who are truly saved will persevere to the end. There is a corruption of that that says, if I am saved, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter because God will hang on to me to the very end. That's arrogance and presumption. Perseverance of the saints says, if God saved me, I will persevere in the faith. Does that mean I won't sin? You're going to sin. Remember last week's sermon from 1 John. If you say you have no sin, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. We're going to sin. We're going to have our ups. We're going to have our doubts. We're going to have our moments. But we will persevere in our faith. And if we do not persevere, does it mean we have lost our salvation? No. It means we were playing a game. And the game got hard, and we quit. We never were a believer to begin with. You ready? You can attend Christ Chapel from the day you're born until the day you die, and you can still go to hell. Now, is it a good thing to attend Christ Chapel From the day you're born until the day you die? Yes, because you will hear the gospel frequently, clearly presented to you. And the opportunity will be given for you to respond to that gospel. And that is a good thing. The flip side of it is if you reject it and reject it and reject it, And reject it, your heart will be hardened no matter whose pews you're sitting in. Hmm. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if, even they, if they do not continue in their belief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Talking to the Jewish community. They have, they will be brought back. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, that is the Gentile community, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? If the Jewish community was broken off so that the Gentile community could be grafted in, how much more can the natural branches be grafted back in when God is ready to do it. God will accomplish that. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Verse 25. I think we could just stop there. Lest you be wise in your own eyes, in your own sight. We'll talk in a couple of weeks about the renewing of our minds and what is wisdom, and what it means to think rightly about God and the world. But the flip side of it is being wise in your own eyes. We see that repeatedly in the Old Testament, where God wants to tell us that things were really bad. He says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Hmm. Aren't we good people and we want to do good things? Isn't that what the world teaches us? Follow your, yeah. no, we're not. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. Paul repeatedly in his writings talks about the mystery of the church. A mystery in biblical terms is not like a whodunit where you read the Agatha Christie novel and on the last page, oh, that person did it. And you go, I never would have figured that out. Or you can be like people I know and just jump to the last chapter and find out who done it. (laughs) It's not that kind of mystery. It is something that God in his plan kept hidden for a while. And at the right time revealed to us. And the mystery is that the Jews and the Gentiles are going to be merged together into the body of Christ. That's the mystery. And you have to understand, at the time this is being written, that's a really big thing. The Jews didn't want to have much to do with the Gentiles, and the Gentiles probably didn't care a whole lot about the Jews. I mean, just take whatever groups that are at odds with each other today, and I'm not going to do that because it would cause all kinds of issues, and acknowledge the fact that God is going to reconcile those groups together. The mystery is the church as the body of Christ made up of people of every race, ethnicity, culture, dialect, language on the planet. That is the mystery of the church. But here we're talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers, a partial Hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. God is giving the Gentile community an opportunity to participate in the covenant that He made with Abraham. We are not pushing the Jewish community out of the way, we are experiencing the blessings of the promise. That were given to the patriarchs. We're part of the tree. We are part of the community. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. All Israel? Well, all Israel... Do you remember back in chapter 9? Not everyone who is of Abraham is of Abraham. Not everyone who says that they are circumcised and part of the community, are part of the community, but the elect are. All of the true Israel will be saved. I believe that there will be a time in history where the Jewish community, as a Jewish community, acknowledges Jesus as Christ. When will that be? That gets into a long discussion of eschatology that we're going to avoid like the plague today. (laughs) Why do I accept dispensational theology? Because I believe, based on this passage, that God is still at work in the Jewish community. We can argue, we can have long debates about eschatology and the order of things to come and all of that stuff, and we as a community have done that a lot. I have been asked numerous times to teach the book of Revelation, and I'm not going to do it. Okay? Well, never say never, right? But I do know this. God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. We as the Gentile community cannot, should not, ought not, be arrogant toward The Jewish community, we cannot, ought not, should not be anti-Semitic in any form or fashion. We should acknowledge the fact that God has made promises and that God is a God who keeps his promises. Now, does that mean that the Jewish community are sweet, kind angels in their current form? No more than you or I are. They are all fallen human beings just like you and me. But God is still at work, and God will still keep his promises. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. How is he going to take away their sins? By reviving the sacrificial system and slaughtering more lambs? No. He's going to take away their sins. The same way he took away your sins, by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood was, is sufficient to cover the sins of all who are saved. There doesn't have to be another sacrifice. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. The Jewish community in Jerusalem was fighting against the church at this point. I mean, let's just be upfront against it. I mean, about it. They were fighting against it. How do we know that? Look at the life of Paul. Paul was part of that community. Paul was part of the community that was trying to kill the Christians, or at least shut them down. That's what he was on the road to Damascus to do. He wasn't going on a picnic. He was going to capture Christians. He knows what he's talking about right here. He doesn't say it boastfully. He doesn't say it pridefully. He just acknowledges it as a fact. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Why is God putting up with the nation of Israel Because God made promises to Abraham, and God's going to keep those. Why does God put up with us? Because God made promises, and he's going to keep them. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. The callings and gifts of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Let's have a show of hands. Who in this room has never been disobedient to God? (laughs) I'll go get my stones and be ready. Because you get to cast the first one. Why is this a big deal? They've been disobedient. We've been disobedient. God has allowed us all to be disobedient. Why? So that he can show that it's all about his grace and his mercy. It's God who saves. It isn't us. It isn't us a little bit. It's God who saves. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. I might add, I will sit here and discuss and debate predestination and election until we all get tired of each other. But at the end of the day, let me tell you the answer. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We can have long discussions. Why did God choose to elect the Jews in the first place? Why did he choose to cast them aside and bring the Gentiles in? Why did he do all of this? The reality is, why does God choose to love any of us? Why does God choose to bestow his mercy on us who have rebelled against him? Why, why, why? And at the end of the day, the answer is, how inscrutable are his ways. Does that mean they are irrational? No. It means you and I cannot understand them. If I brought a two-year-old in here and put a calculus problem up on a whiteboard and told them to solve the problem, they would eat the marker. (laughs) Does that mean that the calculus problem is irrational? No. It means it is beyond the understanding of that two-year-old. And we acknowledge that, and we laugh at that, and we understand the humor in that. Here's a two-year-old, and here's you. Here's you, and God is somewhere way up there. When we deal with the topic of election, we ask why. When we deal with the providence of God and suffering in the world, we ask why. And it's okay to ask why. And when we see things that we do not understand, our natural tendency is to say, God, if you don't explain it to me, why do you think I'm going to follow you? And I could sit here and bring in a classroom of two-year-olds and try to explain to them how to do the calculus problem and they wouldn't learn anything and I would get irritated and we'd all go home. You and I, if we are in Christ, we will die and we will go to heaven. My belief of what we're going to be in doing in heaven is spending eternity learning about an infinite God. Are we going to get to the end of the equation? No. Why? I studied math and I know where infinity ends. (laughs) It doesn't. We, in our arrogance, expect God to explain it all to us. We, in our rationalism from the age of enlightenment on, think that if I don't understand it, it must not be right. It is pure unadulterated arrogance on our part. Does that mean God is irrational? No, no, no. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks when we talk about the renewing of our minds. Yes. Yeah. Where else would I go? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? It kind of reminds me of the last several chapters of the book of Job. Job wants to have a meeting with God and explain his position with God. And God says, sure, let me ask you a question first. And he goes through three chapters of questions. Where were you when I made the earth? Where were you? Who are you? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This ends the section of chapters 9, 10, and 11 that deal with the Jewish community, but it also deals with all of us. It deals with the acknowledgement that it is God who does it. It is God who made promises to the Jews, and he will keep them. It is God who makes promises to us, and he will keep them. The Jews got arrogant and thought because they were in the covenant, they could do whatever they wanted, and God said no. And we become arrogant because we think we're in the community now, and God says no to that. And we get to the end of it, and it's all about God. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you chose to save us. When we were unworthy, when we were sinners, when we were in rebellion against you, you bestowed grace and mercy upon us. And for that, we are grateful. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.